The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is exciting. I've wanted to talk to this guy for a really long time. Judd Apatow is my guest today. Judd, thanks for doing this, man. Pleasure to be here in my own home. Yeah, we're in Judd's home. That's how you know that I really wanted to do this. I actually (laughs) went and we set up uh, in Judd's home. You should know, uh, just brief uh, intro. Uh, Judd, I mean, it's weird, man. I was looking today. You're like one of the absolutely the most successful producers in the whole business. And that's like a sidelight for you. I never, I never even thought about it. I never even think about where it fits in. I just like working with people, and then you have to produce to have that aspect of your career. That kind of collaboration, you mean? Where just, you're able to work with great artists. Well, like I love Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, and you know they're great writers. They don't need me to write. So, like, what can I do to work with them? Or there, there's a lot of situations like that. Yeah, that makes that's sense. That's the way I'm going to be around. But the thing that um, uh, really distinguished you uh, in the beginning, and is still, uh, you know, you made a huge hit record, a uh, hit movie as a director this year, Trainwreck. You're one of the most accomplished directors and writers in the business. And you know, um, I uh, we grew up n- near one another, and we had a, l- a lot of the same obsessions. And I've been reading your book, and I-, I have to say, you wrote this book, and it's a collection of your conversations with comedians that started in 1983, right? Yeah. I find like as you're talking to these people, you reveal them and it's incredible interviews with Gary Shandling and Albert Brooks and Steve Martin and Chris Rock and then people like Michael Che, people who are really super contemporary and you didn't interview them in 1983 because Che wasn't born then, I don't think. He was very far from being born. But uh, you reveal a lot about yourself, I think, in, in Mm -hmm. in these interviews and I thought that was the most interesting part for me. One question came to me right away, which is, because it's one thing you kind of gloss over a little bit. You tell this incredible story, which I'm sure you've told other places, but if you don't mind telling it one more time, about being 13 and chasing down Steve Martin. Well, you know, Steve Martin was a revelation when I was a kid. It's hard to describe the impact of that, because now there's so many funny people, there's so many things happening. But in a, you know, five or six channel universe, pre-even cable television, when somebody hit hard... It's all anyone talked about, whether it was a band or a comedian. And Steve Martin was like Adele. <laughs> That's the only way I could describe it. He was Perfect. Beyonce of comedy. And I, at the time, I don't know, you know, I didn't know why I liked him. I didn't know that he was satirizing comedians or having fun with the form or deconstructing it. I just thought, this is the funniest person. And it, it made me deliriously happy. Yeah, me too. And this is what I was going to say about growing up. Like, um, I was Because I was really thinking about this. You and I grew up. 14 minutes from one another, this basically the same age. I was as obsessed with those people, like crazy obsessed with Steve Martin, knew every routine by heart, but my parents stayed together and yours got divorced. And then I make the kind of movies I make and you make the kind you make. That's how it works, yes. And um, I I was trying to think of why we were like drinking the same fucking water. (laughs) The the really bad hooker chemical company wash off. Quoting the exact same, you know, nobody watched Stripes more times than Mm -hmm. I did. But then um, I make movies about guys saying fuck you to each other over a gambling table. And <laughs> you have to deal with the, the actual pain a different uh, a way. So Steve Martin was this giant thing. And you were out vi- visiting in California. Well, I would visit my grandmother. My grandfather was a jazz producer. He actually produced the first Janis Joplin record and Ted Nugent albums. But he also produced Charlie Parker and Lightning Hopkins and Clifford Brown. I, I, what was his name? His name was Bobby Shad. And he worked for... 
Mercury and Emerson Records and had his own labels like Mainstream Records. Right. You and said in the book, you mentioned Sarah. You don't mention Nugent in the book. You mentioned exactly. Sarah Vaughan in the book. <laughs> There's some Nugent shame now. He did a lot of Dinah Washington and he worked with Quincy Jones in the 60s. And we used to go visit. At some point, my grandmother pointed out, oh, that's Steve Martin's house. And you couldn't even believe anyone you know, lived there. It was like a white block, but apparently very open and 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 beautiful and airy on the other side. So anytime we went anywhere, I would say I would say drive past that house, and and then one day we were driving by and he was just out in the front. I can't remember what he was doing if he was washing his car or getting his mail, but he was just there. And it was every kid's dream. That I can't even imagine. What, yeah, I want to picture that he had a hose and he was doing yeah. the thing where you put your thumb in the hose exactly. to spray the lawn. That's, yeah. that's what I want to picture Steve Martin doing. <laughs> I know. I wish I could remember what he was wearing or, 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 or you know, more details about it. And we had driven by everyone's house. It was, it was, you know, every day. Oh, that's Groucho's old house. That's where Lucille Ball lives. That's where Jimmy Stewart lives. It was all around. Right, but they were all figures from a different age. Steve, even though they were you, they mattered. This was the guy who mattered the most. Yeah. To you. So this is in 1980. So it's uh, 35 years ago now. And I just jumped out of the car with my brother with a piece of paper and said, "Hey, can I have an autograph?" and he said, no, I don't sign autographs in my house. And I said, well, can you sign it in the street? Which was a pretty good joke for, for 13 years old. Yeah. And he said, no, I really can't. And I begged. I, I literally begged for a little while. And I didn't understand how appropriate it was to say no. Because if anyone knocked on my door, I would be in a panic yeah, that people of, knew where I lived. Yeah, of course. I would call security. I'd get new cameras. I would. Well, yeah, he couldn't say yes. <laughs> There's no way he could say yes. But so then you go home and you, you uh, which is my favorite part, you, uh, you write him a letter explaining. Yeah, I, I wrote him a letter where I just said, uh, you're the funniest man in the world, but you treat your fans like garbage. And you wouldn't live in that house if I didn't send you. You wouldn't live in that house if I didn't buy all your albums and go to all your movies. And I demanded an apology. And I said, if you don't give me an apology, I'm going to send your address to Homes of the Stars and you're going to have tour buses passing by 24 hours a day. The blackmail part of that is fantastic. I, and I, I, in looking back, I can't remember if, if I thought I was being funny and he would acknowledge the letter or I really was just mad. But I was, I was mad, though. I was mad, but I also you I, knew guess I was trying to be funny. I thought, oh my God, we have a connection. He's rejected me right. in some way. Sure. Like we're yeah. talking, we're talking, we're finally talking. There's a you know there's that's a, great. Tony Robbins runs his like the six things all humans need, and one <laughs> of them is connect the third the connection, and there are four that everyone meets, yeah. and connection is one. And he says yeah. he says exactly that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you got connection by being hated exactly. in that moment. And so then about three months later, in the mail, I got a book of Cruel Shoes. This book of short comedy pieces he did and in it he wrote to Judd I'm sorry I didn't realize I was speaking to the underlined Judd Apatow and I've talked about this before because I've tried to figure out where it fits in and what I realized was that I I must have uh, processed the fact that I made him laugh because he wouldn't have sent the book if I didn't make him laugh and I think unconsciously it put a lot of gas in my tank and it also showed me, oh, he exists. All these people exist. And I'm a person. That, it gave you this sense of possibility. Because before that, everyone I looked up to in the comedy, whether it was Ronnie Dangerfield or Don Rickles or Paul Lind or, uh, you know, Joan Rivers. My grandma was friends with Tony Fields. That was the one comedian we would see all the time because that was like her best friend. That, that was one of the reasons why I was into it. But it made me think, oh, you can make these people laugh and maybe 
You know, I could do this. I, it was all unconscious, but it, it had a, a huge I'm effect sure, but this me. is the part. So that's, I just felt, in case people didn't know or didn't, hadn't read the book or hadn't heard you on another show, they could hear the story. Because what, the question it really raised to me, and in the book you talk about then being in a meeting with Steve. You just mention quickly being in a meeting with him and someone jokingly asking him and him making a joke that I, I which I liked, you know, that, uh, oh, no, I, I knocked on Judd's uh, door. But here's the real question. What did it actually feel like to get to a place in your life where you could walk into a room and – because you don't really talk about that part. Like when you walked into a room and then Steve Martin was there to mm-hmm. meet with you because you'd earned that thing, what did you hope to get out of that and what did, it, what did it feel like to you to achieve that? That's a good question. We were having a meeting. It was about a TV idea. I don't know. It's a little bit of a blur of terror and excitement. But in those years, I mean, I've, I've, I've watched and tracked everything that he's done. And, you know, he's such an inspiration for doing many things. So, uh, you know, th- like there was a run that we didn't um, keep and knocked up where Seth is on mushrooms. And he's just talking about Steve Martin. In the movie, he's watching Cheaper by the Dozen. And because Catherine Heigl is high, we thought, oh, it's funny for him to be watching Cheaper by the Dozen having a panic attack. Like, this is so hard. So many kids. <laughs> but and we meant it very like lovingly because we just wanted to have Steve Martin in, sure. the, in the movie. But the, what we cut out was which, a whole run about which Steve. Which is a whole run about Steve Martin where Seth says, you know what? He's just been there my whole life. He's always been there, and he's always giving us gifts, whether it's a movie or an album or a funny article in The New Yorker. He just gives and gives and gives, and and they're always funny, and he's always there. Him and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> That's great. That's, is that on the DVD? Is that, is it, does that I, exist anywhere? I, it might be on the deleted scenes. But that is how I feel about it. And in terms of meeting people, I think at that time I had met a lot of people, but I interviewed him for the book. And that was actually maybe you know, a, a, a more special event to get an opportunity to ask him questions and talk to him about things. And but did you ask him, have you ever asked him, what did you, cause he plays it off very glibly and quickly. And then you in the book, you don't ask him about it. And yeah. so did, I didn't do a deep dive on what were you feeling that day? Cause I just, I, I, I think I know that he doesn't really remember, <laughs> well, but, but I think he probably was doing a lot of incredibly nice things like that. I don't think that's the only time he did something incredibly cool Oh, you don't think he'd fan. remember actually writing the letter to you after after that? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I do that occasionally where someone asks for an autograph or, or something, and you just, to blow their mind, you go way above and beyond what they requested. Like, just for the hell of it, you send them every movie you've ever made. Right. Uh, and it just makes you laugh to do too much. Yeah, because it feels like you're picturing <laughs> some kid. Well, you're picturing, I mean, you're picturing you, right? Yes, in a way. yes. But... But, well, but I look up to those guys because, first of all, he's an incredibly kind guy. He's just a great person. And people who have been funny for so long, when you, when you think about how many years he's been on fire. Like, just, I mean, I've, I've seen him. Yes. I, I mean, I went and watched him receive his Oscar. Yeah, incredible. And, I mean, that, and, yeah, and that it was, was a really amazing. beautiful moment, and an emotional speech, a hilarious speech, and he's he's just done so much. So I also look at all of those guys and think, oh, how do you stay funny? How do you stay engaged? How do you not lose it? Well, you've been asking that question. You've been asking those questions of these people for a very long time, as though you could kind of get some key to how to do it by having those conversations that you could unlock something. Do you? Yeah. 
That's true. Or just to talk to people and just try to get a sense of how they live and think. I, you know, I, I spent some time with Mike Nichols in the last few years of, of his life. I met him and he was nice enough to do a lot of lunches and breakfasts with me and give me advice. And I always cherish that opportunity. Uh, Bill Hader and I recently went and visited Mel Brooks and talked to him for a few hours for fun. And I, you know, those are my favorite people, the people who are in their 80s and on fire and still hysterical. Right, still fully engaged, fully creative. Yeah, I think that's, that's an incredible thing. Have you, you figured out? Mel Brooks and, and it's like it's 1972. He's, he's equally as funny. Um, he's aware of everything uh, in culture. He's so sharp. I mean, when he said goodbye to me and Bill, uh, this was in October, and we're walking out. He walks us out of the building, and, and he says, uh, all right, well, come uh, visit me again. Uh, but not yet. Wait a few months. December. Come back in December. Now get the fuck out of here. I mean, we laughed so hard. <laughs> right. It's just everything that you want. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if those are, because I, I, I gather that um, because of the things uh, you, you say in the book to um, both uh, Albert Brooks and, and Ramis, you know, you say, uh, I still can't figure it out because it's so absurd and so awful that I can't do anything but laugh in its face. And, and you're talking about uh, death. Yes. But but hearing you say that, you know, I'm um, I'm reminded of Beckett, right? Of like Godot, of uh, nothing happens, nobody comes, nobody goes. It's terrible. And and then you also say to to Albert Brooks, the whole setup stinks. And uh, so I can tell it, it seems clear that that this idea of uh, of laughter and of staying creatively engaged is a way to stave stave this stuff off. But mm-hmm. your movies are so hopeful by and large. They're all, they all acknowledge, or most of them, I think, acknowledge the reality, right from the beginning, from Freaking right? Most of them acknowledge the reality in early days, the Salinger-esque kind of reality. But they, you don't make crime and punishment, um, the Woody Allen. You don't make, I mean, crimes mm-hmm. and misdemeanors. Yeah. You, you, or you haven't made crimes and misdemeanors. You may want to. What is it that, that, that allows someone who's a non-believer, like I, as I am, and uh, who understands this whole gag is uh, uh, misery in a way, how is your work fueled with so much optimism and hope? Well, I guess I hold out hope something's going on. I don't understand. I, I'm not in the darkest possible place. You always have a friend with a great ghost story or a, a, you know, a near-death experience, and you just think about it all the time. Like, oh, that guy said he saw lights. <laughs> and, and, and that's enough to have me not kill myself. That guy saw lights <laughs> is enough. That's, that guy yeah. saw lights is all you need. Yeah, just one guy you half respect with the great story. But I... I, I think that, that you need that, right? You need you need something that you can just keep vague in your head. Like there's a like a Buddhist thing. You have to love the mystery, which you can't love the mystery. But I do try to think about like, like okay, maybe there's just so much more going on. We are like an ant, you know, looking up at an elephant, and there's so there's so much more happening that we don't understand. But for the most part, I do feel like it is so ridiculous that all you can do is. Laugh, and I think the difference between me and somebody like Woody Allen is uh, that he talks about that if, that if it wasn't movies, it might be basket weaving. That he's just distracting himself. That's why he's making a movie every year. That's why he doesn't want to shut down because his existential funk would uh, be too much to handle. Uh, I and now and I don't know how he feels about making people happy or not making people happy. He doesn't really speak to it very much. It's, he he generally says. Uh, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. But I Hannah actually, and her sister is the only time you get the sa- the only time he speaks to it is in his films and Purple yes. Rose and Hannah speak to it. I think a little bit. Yes. So so, but for me, I feel like I like to make things that are 
hopeful or at least say the only way you're going to get through it is with a human connection. Uh, that's what you know, funny people was ultimately about. That all there really is and all you really need is to just be nice to Seth, to just have a friend, to just connect with somebody. And I like that it makes people feel better. I always laugh about this, and I've said it before in, uh, in other places, but as much as I love uh, you know, movies with dark endings, it's not hard to end a movie by shooting someone in the head. Uh, and it's not actually more profound. And, and some of those are my favorite movies. But you know, when you make movies, you're making choices to be happy or sad in your endings. And yeah, I, you know, I, I can come up with some weird way to end a movie that makes you, you know, think that life is awful. Uh, but, they, but life is awful, so I don't need to make that point. <laughs> necessarily. Right. I mean, I get what you're saying, that it's not necessarily the more profound choice, but especially if the... Uh, in your movies, one can see um, at the edges where the darkness is, and, yeah. and the, certainly you allow your characters to do things that reveal that they're not always the, the best of themselves. Yeah, and let's enjoy it as much as we can. I guess that, that's part of it. But that is why I was attracted to Paul Feig's script for Freaks and Geeks, which is the opening scene was a girl talking about being the only one in the room when her grandmother died and her asking her if she saw anything and the grandma saying no. And it set her off on this existential funk and made her doubt everything that she was trying to do. And I thought, well, the, the, the network is never going to let us keep this. You can't start a show about high school kids that begins with a girl realizing God doesn't exist. And it just slipped right through. And I thought it was... It, it, I was well, maybe it's what it enabled was, you guys to make that connection with people that's lasted for such a long... Yeah, I mean, it really was a wonderful, daring thing that Paul did in the writing. And that's what, what, why I love the show, because I thought, yeah, that is the... The fuel that motors everything, which is what the hell is the point of this? How much of this do I want to experience? How do I feel about people? It seems clear in the way that you organize your world creatively, professionally, that people being decent matters to you. When you know, even when you talk about the reasons you were uh, uh, attracted to working with the people you were attracted to working with, it feels like you're really interested in them as humans and as artists. And do you think those things? have to be bundled? Can you like, though? Can you sort of... Sure, if you went down the list of everyone I like, and you said, hey, you like that rock star, and they could say, well, he did this to that woman. I mean, I'm sure you could ruin everyone for me. But it would have the effect of... That's what I'm saying. For you, it it actually... um, You need to kind of, like, love the whole thing. It's not that I couldn't appreciate something, but I can't lose myself in it because the fact that Tom Hanks is a really good guy affects me when I watch the movie. It makes it better for you. And if something came out that was awful, right, then I wouldn't watch Philadelphia the same way. I would just think about the other part. That's just me. Some people, they don't care. They're just like, no, I'm just watching the movie. And I I don't think that's wrong. I, I think that if you are home right now, cracking up to Bill Cosby records, I, it, it, it feels weird, but go enjoy. I mean... You no, know, the question to me is those are ruined for me. I can never... I mean, and I, I, could, uh, I could quote a lot of them. Yeah. Like, I, those are absolutely ruined. I could never watch well, them Well, they have again. different meaning. I mean, if, when you listen to them, they mean different things. You, you, you interpret it differently. You're clearly right about Cosby, and I think that there's no question that speaking out when you did was, impo- was an important thing. Do you, do you sort of think about when you do something like that, 
your place in the town and the amount of people who work with you and hold you in, in high regard? Do you think about that you're trying to influence the, the conversation? I usually think that my opinion doesn't matter at all. You know, if I suddenly start talking about what I think our approach to ISIS should be, I don't think I'm going to move the conversation in any way. But I did feel that in, in that situation, because no one was talking about it, that if I spoke about it, at least it might not go away. Hi, I'm Ezra Klein, editor-in-chief of Vox.com, and I've got a new podcast on the Panoply Network. It is called The Ezra Klein Show, which I'm never going to be able to say without feeling like a terrible, terrible narcissist. But it's long-form, intimate, real conversations with newsmakers, with politicians, policymakers, journalists, business leaders, people who are influencing the world in fascinating and important ways. We talk about what they think, why they think it, what they believe. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with these people, and I hope you enjoy it too. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are given away for free over the internet. Have you ever thought about um, serving in ele- like elected office? Uh, no, not at all. I never would consider it for a minute. I, I, I that's just not what I'm here you, for. You have this huge skill set, though. I mean, just sitting right, you mm. you care about this stuff deeply, and you have this huge skill set to organize people to get the most and the best out of groups of people, to get all sorts of disparate people working toward a unified goal. You know how to message and convince people um, to follow. And and you're um, even hearing you talk about the banality of evil thing, and you've obviously like, read a lot about this stuff, know about it. Have you thought about becoming more active in any way towards actually influencing this stuff beyond just talking about it? Uh, no, I just like to get involved with charities and politicians who I respect. I'm not going to be the next Fred Grandy from the love boat and <laughs> do my term somewhere. Uh, but I love that Al Franken did it. I think well, that to have a guy who is there only because he cares, uh, you yeah, know, but why was, wouldn't you, why wouldn't you do it? You're just not interested in it or it's not painful to have to deal with it. Jump into some bureaucracy where you can move the ball so little. I feel like it just in terms of the larger picture of good I could bring to the world, I, I probably get more done supporting voices of people like Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer and helping create things that make people happy, but also the result, and it's not what I'm going for most of the time, but the fact that suddenly these brilliant women have a platform to speak about important ideas. Yeah, I was thinking about this mentorship thing, the the way in which you've helped these artists. And it's not only women, but notably Wig. Lena and Schumer, and it is interesting that there are three, that those are, you know, three or four women who you recognized could be doing something more and have a better platform and that you really found a way to help them get where they were going. Did did the fact that they were women matter to you or did you feel you had, there was an extra reason that you needed to do it or was it just like, oh, I think that they're great? It's hard to say. I mean, I've always uh, been influenced by my wife, Leslie Mann, who you know, has very strong ideas about a lot of things and how the business works and how women are treated and and uh, the quality of the scripts and uh, all of the things that Lena and Amy talk about, Leslie and I have talked about for a very long time. And I, I don't know if on some level it made me more uh, open to taking these shots with these people. You know, on one level, I would like to say, you know, my first job ever was writing for Roseanne and, you know... Freaks and Geeks was basically about Lindsay Weir, and I, I don't look at it like I'm the guy, comedian guy. 
I just met Seth and he was the funniest kid I ever met in my life. And, uh, and I loved all those projects and I'm a man. So I tend to write, you know, for men more, but also, you know, there's clearly a dearth of women or, you know, it's getting better and to to be able to champion people has been really fun, and yeah. there's a need for it. So it's hard to know. I watched Tiny Furniture. I just thought, I, I love this work, and she's incredible, and I'd be lucky to get to be a part of what she's doing in, in any small way. I didn't have any vision beyond, wow, this is like a, a, a young woman James Brooks. This is the exact style that I, I love. And, and I, I would have felt the same way if it was a man, but who knows? I, you know, you never know. It's funny. So t- Tiny Furniture, which I love, flat out love, love that movie. I mean, I can't even believe the way she shot that thing, the the scene outside it. I mean, she's just an incredible, every part of it, in- incredible. Um, it's funny. I, I realized I should show my daughter Metropolitan and that as a, because she's like a 10th yes, grader yes. in New York. <laughs> I should show both <laughs> Metropolitan and I should, I've shown my son Metropolitan. I should show those two movies. Um, but much darker than James Brooks, don't you think? Well, I think that she, uh, you know, she talked about a very specific experience, you know, you know, a person after college coming from some privilege, but having fun comedically with, you know, the the type of person who uh, feels very self-entitled, but can't figure it out, thinks they're going to do something grand, but has no clue what that might be. I mean, she really understands a certain type of person and, and thinks it's funny and also has compassion for it. And I never thought about it in terms of lightness or darkness, other than she also is very comfortable with her sexuality, you know, with her body, uh, and and being honest in a way that previous generations haven't done that often. You know, it's very hard to do sex funny. It's very hard to do intimacy to that level where it's real and it hits you emotionally and it can be hilarious. I, I don't know if there's a precedent of someone who's done that as successfully as she does. Yeah, I, I agree. What uh, um, what do you get out of, I'm wondering if this mentorship that you do, obviously it's profitable for you and makes and you've built a gigantic business out of it. But I'm, um, when I knew I was going to talk to you, I, I, the whole time I've been, I've been thinking about this mentorship stuff and, and really trying to understand like what about it, first of all, why people talk about you not as, you know, most of the time people talk about producers. It's like, ah, oh, that fucking producer. And people talk about you as a producer, as someone who just makes them better, makes the work better, creates an environment that they can thrive in, all this stuff. And part of me wanted to just do this, thought like, oh, the way to do this podcast is actually just to make it a management seminar. Yes. <laughs> because um, I think you do things that when people talk about in every, like, in fact, that should be your next book, should be your management book. Mm-hmm. Because you're, uh, you know, people always want to get the most uh, out of their employees and make them the most create most creative uh, part of themselves. But what? How do you think about the job you do as a, a, a producer and, and mentor? How much of it is uh, ties into this idea of what it means to be a good person, which is obviously something you think about a lot. How much of it has to do with business, and how do you how do you reconcile all that? I just think about what I experienced and try to save people from it. I think that's part of it. You know, early in your career, you work with people who don't understand what you're doing, who don't believe in you, who try to change you too much, who who water down your vision, who think their opinion is more important than your opinion, even though you're the one making it. It took me a long time to find uh, studios and and, uh, executives who understood what I was doing and could help me and not destroy me. You know, I come from a, a history of 
trying to make people like Jason Siegel and Seth Rogen leads of TV shows and people just saying no. Like they just didn't have any vision for uh, you know who to cast and certain ideas. And it drove me mad. Like literally drove me mad. You mean the fact that, mad. right, you, you went crazy. But I had to really go, what's happening? I might think I'm projecting all my parental issues on this executive because I'm really losing my mind. Because it's like your parents telling you they don't believe in you. So it gets very intense if you don't realize that the approval from executives connects to how you were parented, uh, you know, you're going to have a big problem. So I learned a lot finally after 10 years to separate it and to say, it was a big lesson I learned from Larry Gelbart. You know, he said he was, there was a movie and he hated the director they hired and he hates the movie. But he said, I realized like you just have to take the person to lunch. And if they're not funny, don't make the movie with them. But that's the case for everyone you deal with in the business, which is you really have to take a moment and go, do they get it? So when I work with new people, it's almost like they're me and I'm walking them through it in a way that avoids every landmine that I hit. You know, here's, here's how I wish people treated me as a writer. Here's how I wish they treated me in casting. Here's how, because I know at what stage, <clears throat> excuse me, I know at what stage the script's going to be good and then it's going to be kind of not good for a while and we're going to get stuck and then we're going to kind of figure it out and then this isn't going to ever be good on the page but it'll be good on the sets. And, and and you're able to help them through that. And how much, I mean, so that that stuff you said about the parental figures, I mean, I can hear the therapy work in it and, and all that stuff. How much of your, the way you react and deal comes from, like rigorous deep thought where you go away and try to figure stuff out and how much is just this thoughts become synthesized over the years into just emotionally gut uh, reaction. Like how, how much, how much time do you give to thinking about how you're going to be as a, a, ma- a manager of people, a producer of people and an encourager? Well, at this point, it, a, a lot of it is just how I do it, but slowly you realize, Oh, when you're writing a first draft, you got to really encourage people because they'll never finish if you don't. And then there's another stage where you have to be really hard on them or it won't get better. It won't and become then good. And you have to give them another few runs to let their mind go crazy because they won't get creative and really take risks if they feel like I'm a, a voice of criticism that they're afraid of. How do you stay okay when the time pressure gets great? Like I've struggled with this a lot in running a writer's room. Mm-hmm. Found a way, haven't, um, I'm, I'm glad that I'm the age that I am when I'm doing it and it's not 15 years ago because I, I think I would have been horrible to people. But when, when you have the pressure of writers delivering drafts yes. and you know you're shooting in two weeks, how do you do the math for yourself and all this stuff? Um, you have a st- movie star for a movie and you have to take, how do you figure out, okay, I'm, I have to take the script over now, or I'm going to let them keep doing. Like, how do you balance the equities of sort of implied promise you've made to these people, which is like a dual one, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to be good to you, but I'm going to also make sure your work is great. With having to having to actually like get the thing done in the best way. I, I find the best way to do it is you have to be very clear with your staff what the process is going to be, which is. We're all going to kick this around. You're going to go off and write an outline. And then we're all going to kick around that outline. And when we like it, we're going to let you do a draft. And then we're going to give you notes a few times. And then at some point, we're either done or I'm going to fix it myself or ask someone else to fix it. And then if everyone knows that, then you lose the emotional aspect, which is I'm so mad at Judd for screwing with my script. So there is a respect to the writer. You're going to get a lot of runs of this. We're going to start it really early. 
not going to assign you a script that we have to shoot three weeks later, and then it's going to be a lot of tension. I'm going to do it months in advance. And then at some point, it's either done or there's a little work to do. And if there's a ton of work to do, we have to then just do what we have to do and no one can care about anyone's feelings. How do you make sure you're going to do it months in advance? Well, that's just you know something I learned from Phil Rosenthal, <laughs> just hearing about how he ran Everybody Loves Raymond, which is it was just a very well-run show with schedules. They did everything early. It wasn't in a panic. And like right now, we're going to shoot the second season of our Netflix show, Love, which starts airing in February. We, we start shooting in late March. So we're all writing outlines now. And I'm aware, hey, if I can get three or four people writing drafts before the end of the year... I can get four written before the end of the year. I can get four written in January, and then the last two written during the season. And then we shoot in March. We have all that time to punch up. But you have to, like, in a disciplined way, go, okay, by Wednesday, we're going to have an outline of that show. Uh, and no matter what, do you, uh, do you, are you able to manage and work with your execs in the same sort of, with the same level of like love and care that you can the artists that you, work with yes because i'm i very carefully pick collaborators who i really personally like and think have a lot to add to the projects but you know when you're trying to get a job and you're young and poor anyone who writes you a check you will write something for and that's why the chances that that person doesn't understand anything about what you do are much higher yes because you need the money so if someone says uh you know, yeah. That studio loves your idea and no other studio likes it. You will sell it to eat. And then at some point when you can afford to eat, you might say, I don't want to work with that guy because I had a meeting with him and he's a schmuck. But this yeah. woman over here totally gets the joke and is super cool. Yeah, so you don't stumble into those same yeah. – you hope you don't stumble into those same mistakes. And again. over 30 years, hopefully you filtered out the nightmare people and found the people that make you happy to – to get up and work and and people you want to call when you finish a draft, you want to go, Oh, I can't wait till Donna Langley reads this. I'm excited to see what she says. Uh, but a lot of times you're terrified to hand it in if you're with the wrong person. Cause you're like, Oh, they don't get it. Like when we did the Ben Stiller show, immediately we heard that the new head of Fox didn't like it and didn't think our parody of Cape fear was funny. And I thought it's over. The right. whole show is over. If he does not get that this sketch is funny. You know, um, we still, Dave Levine, my creative partner, and I, we still say Scout Santiago all the time <laughs> from the A Few Good Men uh, one um, uh, on that show. That, that, that to me is the, I don't, you know, that, yes, the Cape Fear skit's incredible. Yes. But A Few Good Men is pretty amazing, yeah, too. that's a good one. I think David Cross wrote right, that one. Right, he did, right? I think so. I think, I, I, I don't know if it was Dino Stamatopoulos or David Cross. I think it was David Cross because you we guys, all thought But you was, all came up with the tone. Of, I mean, the show was the show you all yeah. were making together. But we all know. thought that sketch was really funny. And I remember that David Cross wrote it probably in five minutes and couldn't have been less proud of it. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys all wanted to jump out the window. And you, when, when, like today, I was so reading the book. One of the fun things in reading the book was reading your interview with Michael Che. And I thought to myself, oh, if, if Che hadn't been on The Daily Show and uh, SNL... It felt to me like you would love to take him and, and, oh, sure. and go and say like, yeah. uh, not, when you meet people like that, are you, is it still something that tur- like really turns you on a lot to go find? Oh, absolutely. It's my favorite part about it. Because I also think that when you're first starting out, you're so excited and you work so hard and there's just a, there's a moment of enthusiasm and willingness to, to put in a, a massive effort that 
isn't the same when you're juggling a lot of things and your career is going well. I mean, when you don't know who you are, you are much more creatively adventurous than when your persona has been defined for you. So if suddenly we were saying, let's make a movie with Michael Che, anything is possible. Yes. But if it's the eighth Michael Che movie, you know, there's a little groove that's been made and it's hard to break out of it. Some people do. That's really great. It, you but, just really yeah. explained something fantastic about why the beginning is so exciting. Oh, it's so fun to go, what is Steve Carell like as a movie star? How do we make, how do we want to watch him the whole movie? What do we like about him? What is this journey for him? What's the journey for Amy? Why would I want to watch Amy for two hours? And that part I find super fun. Yeah, um, me too. And, and just to sort of uh, finish up, a, a couple of things. So someone who does, you know, so many people who listen to the show are people who want to be, uh, who are like, you know, young artists or they're, they're writing and they're, they're trying to do this thing. Um, how do you now continue to, to write? And people always say, I don't have the time, you know, or I want to write, but I, I can only write a page this week. Do you have some sort of a routine? I know I've read a lot about your stuff. You know, you write, you do what I do, write on the notes on your iPhone and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But how do you organize your day to keep yourself in a state of flow, to never be like blocked or unable to do it. Like, how do you do all the stuff that you do and then protect the part of you that's the most creative part? I don't at all. I've been terrible about it. I think I've been really bad about it. You've given up. I've given up. You know, the TV world has exploded, right? So now there's all these opportunities to do things with Netflix and HBO and suddenly they need so much content that we've been able to get some very cool projects going. And that just has swallowed up an enormous amount of my mental space. And I haven't carved out the two hours in the morning for what I'm going to write for my next uh, screenplay. And uh, I haven't resolved it at all. I actually don't think I've resolved it since I had kids. Because I used to write from about 9 or 10 at night till 2 in the morning. But when your kids get up at 6 o'clock every day, as you get older, you just can't do it. And that's my sweet spot to be creative. You like to work late at night. Yeah, and I can't do it, and then I just get tired, or the next day I'm obliterated. Yeah. And so for a while I would do mornings, hit the desk, 9 o'clock till 12. That's when it happens. You know, Don't put any calls through, but now there's too many calls. And does it is bo- Does this bother you? I'm not sure, because I don't feel like I have anything to say right now outside of what I'm saying in the TV work uh, and, and giving notes on scripts that I feel like I'm neglecting. But probably if I had a lot of open headspace, maybe a new big idea would come. And I think if the idea comes, I'll make the time. But I just I haven't thought of it. And it, So the, it doesn't start for you with like um, a regular practice of trying to generate ideas. It, no. I mean, an idea has to just show up. Somehow. Yeah, an idea shows up and then suddenly I want to think about it. Do you meditate? I do. Okay, uh, what, what kind of enough. you do? I do TM, but... Me too, yeah. I do it every day. But sometimes it'll just hit me like, oh, I want to let's talk about... Uh, Having a baby. And then suddenly I have just like hundreds of pages of little thoughts and scenes and moments. And that hasn't happened. But it might be because I'm 48 and I don't like the life. Like that era is different. Like a 48-year-old is dealing with a different kind of transition that is, uh, you know, I really enjoyed writing about in This is 40. And I have like some ideas about that. But in terms of like silliness, if I go like, okay, what am I like at 48? I don't think of that as like a silly, hilarious era for, for just my own personal behavior because you're an adult and you're, you are responsible. So yeah. either you blow up that guy's world 
and force him to act like a child again right. to make him irresponsible, or it's just like an insurance agent. And so I haven't really reconciled. So it's much easier for me to talk to Amy and kick around ideas uh, well, about but I wonder, her but young dude, life. What you're talking about is really doing, and, and not that you haven't done mature work, you have, but you're talking about... Do you want to do another kind of thing in a way? Like if it can't be anarchic and silly, you've done – I mean, This is 40 is not a silly movie at all. Yeah, and I think that I covered I mean, a lot I, there. And so uh, – you know, and I've tried to write some things about people that have nothing to do with my experience. And I haven't been able to crack them. You know, to just write something about just people in different jobs. Right. You could direct, obviously, you can direct a movie uh, yeah. that's not about you. But, but you're saying you can't really make a movie that doesn't touch touch on my main that, issues. But I that might be just a leap I need to make. And once I do it, I I will be able to uh, feel comfortable in it. Because uh, your Groundhog Day is the thing that you probably haven't. Like, you know, you talked to Ramis about that being the yeah. greatest co- comedy of all time. Yeah. And you say in that conversation with Ramis uh, that. Um, I'm in pain the whole time, mm-hmm. meaning making stuff. But you add that comment to the other comments. And obviously there is like a little existential, you can tap into an existential crisis, it seems to me, yes. if you wanted to. Well, that's what funny people was. Yeah. So I feel like I covered the like, what if I get sick? What was this all about? Why, why am I a comedian? I've covered a lot of my big topics. And so like in my head, I go, I could write about when I was 13 now. I could write about, you know, those types of things. And something will occur to me at, at, at some point. It might be that I'm just happy. You know, I'm just happy right now. So you don't have to write. And uh, and so nothing is screaming. Like when we had uh, kids, I thought, oh, this is really funny, like this transition to going, sure. okay, I got to get my shit together. Sure. It's a funny transition. And even the transition of being 40 and realizing, oh, I have to... You know, s- I have to get. I have to handle a very complicated life with a lot of plates spinning. Uh, that it's 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 too much. That's what I thought when we made this is for you. Like life is too much between your kids and your work and your relationships. That we all feel like there's too many plates spinning and they're just crashing around us. Uh, the modern life is is very complicated. It, it clearly bothers you when you talk to Shanling and Steve Martin that they're not making movies and and, uh, and Brooks mm-hmm. that they're not making movies. Mm-hmm. You you bring it up. You ask them about it a bunch of times. Yeah. You circle back to it, and so you know, and that they're that they're not that some part of the, 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 the process of writing movies for them became too painful because of the... Well, who knows? I mean, and I also think, you know, for all those people, there's so many ways they can be creative. They don't have to make movies. And also, they've also done so many amazing things. At what point do you feel like, I just want to have fun and live my life? And so whatever pace they make things at, because they're all making, still making incredible things, uh, nobody has any duty to anybody to keep up, like, you know, the every other year movie... Uh, rhythm. Yes. Um, I'm happy when people I love do that. I love that Ron Howard has a movie every other year. I'm thrilled. But I also have to just be thankful to those people for making anything. And but personally, as a fan, I'm like, yeah, I want, I want, I want ten more Albert Brooks movies. But I, I get why you know he's got kids. I have kids. Or you know, <laughs> you know that you, you know, he loves acting. I'm sure he he wrote an amazing novel. Uh, yeah. And, and so what what does anyone owe the world? And the truth is nothing other than the fact that, like, it would make me happy and a lot of other people happy. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you just say even that you're, you're happy because that was the other thing um, in a few, different, a few different times in a few different ways. And I know part of it to be funny or relate to these famously, um, you know, uh, unhappy dudes. But, you know, you say this the whole thing is so hard and it's so painful and dealing with waiting for things to come out is painful. And then the response 
And I did think, you know, if Judd isn't happy, then what chance do the rest of us fucking have? Because <laughs> no, I'm very, very happy. I mean, I, I in in terms of uh, a, a ton of things. I mean, you, you know, outside of uh, existential things, which you just have to hypnotize yourself into not thinking about too much. Uh, but you know, that that's what life is right now. You know, life is my daughter saying, "Did you see the new ISIS video about attacking New York?" While she's in LA and I'm in New York, you know, so it's very hard not to think about larger questions you know it gets more difficult to be super obsessed on your silliness when there's large things happening i agree and i think you should write about those large things and make movies about them well if you're not going to go be a pilot if you're not going to go fix them (laughs) which i think you could do i think you have the resources to fix them uh then you gotta keep making movies about yeah i will uh, well i'm trying i'm trying i'm sure something will will occur to me but great well when it does please come back and do this again absolutely all right great thanks judd apatow you can get the book which is called sick in the head sick in the head you can watch i don't just turn on the television one of his fucking shows is on every five minutes well love is on in february on netflix and then girls comes back in february on hbo and you're making a pilot as we speak and then, I, and then I produced a Pee Wee Herman movie, which is on Netflix in March. Like I said, just turn on one of your devices and you'll find Judd Apatow. Thanks for doing this. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Brian Koppelman. Judd is on Twitter, uh, active on Twitter. You can reach out to him. Oh, dude, do you know you were at... I did a whole tweet storm at you one day when you and I were sitting... I was sitting outside at the Four Seasons in LA and you were sitting inside on the other side of the glass. And I just kept tweeting about you sitting there. But you never, I don't think you ever saw it. I was like, oh, hey, Judd, look down and do your thing, but you never saw it. And uh, The but, only time I wasn't on Twitter in the last four That's years. what I'm, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was like, he's going to see and look up and think this is hilarious. And then nothing, and I felt like a douche. <laughs> All right, then. Thank you uh, for doing this. Thank you.